Hello, everyone, and welcome to this immediate reaction NFL Draft podcast episode of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. Very simple here. The NFL Draft first round just ended. I'm going to get into it, and I'm going to go just picks 1 to 32 down the board and just go through my thoughts, my reactions, my takeaways from each of those picks. So let's just start it off. I don't really need to get into it too greatly with Joe Burrow and Chase Young at 1 and 2. I mean, Joe Burrow was clearly the 1-1 of this draft with Tua having the injury concerns outside of the fact that it was only a one year in which he was this elite-level prospect. Joe Burrow was a flawless quarterback prospect. Ohio guy, drafted by Cincinnati, not much to say there. Same for Chase Young. Chase Young, to me, is the best player in this draft. And the Redskins, look, we'll see what ends up happening, what ends up happening with Dwayne Haskins as far as being the long-term quarterback answer for them. But Chase Young, again, the best player in this draft, and they get an elite-level difference maker there. And I don't want to put these expectations on him, but if I were to have to predict that one player in this draft is going to eventually be a Hall of Fame player, it would be Chase Young. So, look, I've gone into it in more nuanced ways in prior episodes, but Chase Young here at two, does not not much needs to be said. Best player in the draft, they got him there. So let's really get into it here as far as the nitty-gritty and the interesting aspects of this draft. Let's start with the third pick. The Lions, there was a lot of smoke and a lot of buzz about, are they going to trade down? Are the Dolphins going to come up? Are the Jacksonville Jaguars going to come up? What's going to happen? And if they stay, what are they going to do? Coming into the draft, I think it was pretty clear that Jeff Okuda, Derek Brown, and Isaiah Simmons were the three guys there. I had thought coming into it, you know, Okuda was the commonly held belief as far as if they stayed, that would be their pick. I thought there was a decent chance Derek Brown could have gotten in there as well with an outside chance of Isaiah Simmons. But if they were to stay there and make the pick at three, which they did, Jeff Okuda was the guy to pick. Even though to an extent it is not necessarily improving the overall team because he's just kind of going into the Darius Slay spot, cornerback is perhaps the most important position on the defensive side of the ball. Jeff Okuda is a high-level prospect at that position, and I think there's a lot more value to be had in getting a corner than a defensive tackle, regardless of how disruptive of a presence Derek Brown is in the pass rush and in stopping the run. And I really like Isaiah Simmons, obviously, as I've said before on the show, as a Swiss Army Knife elite versatile defensive weapon prospect. But looking at it, Jeff Okuda there at three. Jeff Okuda is an elite level corner prospect, most valuable position on the defensive side of the ball. They got him in there, and if they were to stay at three, that was the guy that they should have picked. So a solid pick there for the Detroit Lions. And, you know, I, I like Derek Brown, but I think Derek Brown at three, that that would not have been great value. I like where he went at seven. I'll get into that in a bit. But I think if they stayed at three, Jeff Okuda was the guy to pick. So I like that pick there for the Lions at three. You know, in the macro, maybe it's not a huge net gain from last year because he goes into Slay's spot. But real solid pick that I like there for the Lions at three. Then we get into Andrew Thomas at four for the New York Giants. You know, all along we had thought that Jedrick Wills and Tristan Wirfs, those were the two guys to really look at in considering who the Giants would pick at four. But with all the rumors that have been put out there in the last two days surrounding Andrew Thomas and the fact that this absurd idea that the Dolphins were going to trade up for Andrew Thomas or the Jaguars were going to trade up for Andrew Thomas. To me, with that signal, with all of this discussion around Andrew Thomas, and specifically getting in front of the Giants for Andrew Thomas, 
to me that signaled, okay, Andrew Thomas is held in much higher regard than we as outsiders from personnel rooms and front offices are thinking. And if there's a lot of uh, smoke around the idea that teams have to get in front of the Giants for Andrew Thomas, perhaps we should take it serious that he could be in play for the Giants at four, Andrew Thomas. And so I thought it would be Wills worse for Thomas and ended up being Thomas. Now, I've talked about this on the podcast before. When you look at Isaiah or Andrew Thomas, excuse me, not Isaiah Thomas, Andrew Thomas is a guy who can play on the left side at a left tackle or at right tackle. For this season, he'll be at right tackle. Nate Solder will be at left tackle. And then after the season, when they cut Nate Solder, I'm sure he'll move over to the left side. I think Andrew Thomas was a very safe pick. I don't think there's a ton of upside there. I think he's going to be a solid, dependable starter, but not necessarily an all-pro caliber player. I I think looking at the four offensive tackles, you know, I I probably have him fourth. You know, it's close between him and Wirfs as far as who I would have as my number three tackle of those big four. Becton was my one, Wills two, and then I think I had Wirfs three and Thomas four. Wirfs slightly ahead of Thomas. So they, in this loaded offensive tackle draft, were the first team to pick an offensive tackle and picked a guy who, in my opinion, was the number four offensive tackle of the big four top tier of this draft. Now, I get it because he's very safe. He's going to step in there on day one and be an effective starter on the right side and move over to the left eventually. And he can be an effective starter on either side of that line, left or right, and will replace Nate Solder at left tackle after the season. So I get it. Makes sense. He's a ready-made guy who can step in and contribute. I just think that it's a super safe pick, and that's fine. You know, sometimes that's fine. It's a really safe pick where there's not a ton of upside there, and when you had, in my opinion, Makai Becton, who I look at as Jason Peters 2.0, Jedrick Wills, who I think is better than Andrew Thomas and can play on either side, and... I think I would have slightly preferred Tristan Wirfs as well. I just look at it as them sitting there at four. You know, They could have traded down from four and still gotten one of those four offensive tackles better than the guy that they picked and picked up some additional draft capital, even if they took a lesser return just to get something in trading down. So I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a bad pick by any means. He's going to be an effective player at a position of need for them on the offensive line. I just think that they didn't necessarily maximize the value of the pick and at the same time could have traded down and gotten someone better than him at the position. And I just had him, again, a major position here in this draft of the big four number one tier of offensive tackles. They picked the guy, in my opinion, who was the fourth best. So not the best maximization of the pick, a solid pick, a very safe pick, but not one that to me has the ability to reap huge, massive upside with it. Next, we go to the Miami Dolphins. And so with this discussion, I think I'll just get into the whole macro of the Dolphins' first round here. The fifth pick, Tua Tonga-Vailoa. The eighth pick, or 18th pick, excuse me, Austin Jackson from USC, the offensive tackle. They traded down from 26 to 30 and picked up a fourth round pick from Green Bay. I believe it was 136 or 130, somewhere in that range. And they got Noah Igbonaheni, the corner from Auburn. The Miami Dolphins had the best first round of anyone in this draft. Spoiler alert here, the two teams who I thought had the best first round in this draft were the Miami Dolphins and the Minnesota Vikings. And so we look at specifically, I've talked about two ad nauseum on this podcast, but the fact of the matter is this. 
Tua Tagovailoa, if he's healthy, is going to be a top 10 quarterback in this league. He's going to be a lefty Drew Brees who's super accurate, who has great poise with great decision making, makes all the tight window throws, and is a proven leader. An alpha personality valued in that culture being built by new head coach Brian Flores. And there were, I will give the Dolphins credit here. They put on the best smokescreen effort perhaps that anyone has ever seen in the NFL draft. Nobody knew definitively what they were doing at any point during this process. There was a good two-week period where everyone thought it was Justin Herbert. Then all of a sudden, they were going to trade up for Andrew Thomas, which, side note on that, they were going to, let's just logically think that through. They're going to trade Laramie Tunsil, get picks for him, and then use those picks to trade up for his replacement? Come on. That never made any sense. So, in looking at Tua, it was clear Tua was always their guy. And from when I got on board with the Dolphins process prior to last year's draft, it was clear they were angling to get a franchise quarterback in this draft. Tua was clearly always the guy, and I'm so happy they got him. And with all the efforts they put out there with the smokescreens, they were able to stay at five and get their guy. And I think Tua, if he's healthy, is going to be a stud in this league for a very long time. So, major props to the Miami Dolphins for getting Tua at five without having to trade up, and he was their guy all along. Next, we go to Austin Jackson at 18. They had to get an offensive tackle in the first round of this draft. I personally, in that second tier of offensive tackles, I like Josh Jones the most of all of them, uh, but Austin Jackson I get. I think with Austin Jackson, it's going to take some time. He's going to need uh, some work. He's raw, but he has a lot of upside. He's only 20 years old, great big body and frame. He's going to need work a pretty good amount of it, so it's going to take time, and he's not going to be an immediate contributor for this team that needs immediate help at, as far as I'm concerned, both tackle spots, and with the moves they've made, you know, they could very well end up having Tua not play this season, have Fitzpatrick play at quarterback, so they made a lot of moves with free agent signings to get a lot of talent in to be better for this season, but Austin Jackson is not an immediate contributor for this season. Austin Jackson is a long-term fixture on your offensive line at left or right tackle protecting Tua. And with Tua being such an injury risk, they need to have a very strong offensive line for the long term. Ted Karras is a one-year stopgap. Michael Dieter, they picked in the third round last year. We don't know if he's an actual starter in the NFL. Jesse Davis, I think, would be better off as a guard than a tackle. Eric Flowers had a great year last year. They signed him for three years, 30 mil. We'll see if he can continue to be that player over the course of the contract. But they need to build this offensive line, and I like them going for Austin Jackson because really that second tier of offensive tackle, to an extent, was largely comprised of upside plays. And Austin Jackson, and Ezra Cleveland, and Josh Jones, and Isaiah Wilson, who went 29th. So to me, I thought, of all those guys, you know, I like Josh Jones the most, but I think I will very much admit there's a lot of upside to be had in Austin Jackson. Again, only 20 years old, and I think if you can work with him for a year— and not throw him into the fire too quickly, that's a guy who on the right or left side can be a long-term fixture for you. You just can't rush him in there, and I don't think you can really have expectations for him this year. But at such a premium position, to take a guy, a flyer on a guy like that who's so young with so much upside at the 18th pick when you have that great of a need, I think that's really solid value there for the Dolphins. And then we go to 26. As I mentioned, they traded down from 26 to 30, picked up a fourth from Green Bay. Green Bay got up there to pick Jordan Love. We'll get into that. But they go in there at 30, and they get Noah Igbonahenny, the corner from Auburn. You've listened to the last episode of this podcast and read my tweets. 
at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R. I am a huge fan of Noah Igbonahenny. And what this shows is a further indication of the Miami Dolphins really valuing pass coverage over all else on the defensive side of the ball, fully subscribing to the fact that corners and pass coverage, not necessarily, yeah, we'll go with corners. Corners are more important than edge rushers, and pass coverage is more important than pass rush. They are a prime example of that notion. Xavier Howard and Byron Jones as your two starting corners. Their two starting safeties and Bobby McCain and Eric Rowe are converted corners. Kyle Van Noy, they spent a lot of money on as a Swiss Army Knife linebacker slash edge hybrid guy this offseason, is very good in pass coverage. And now they go out here and get Noah Bonhenny at the 30th overall pick, and you look at it on the surface, you say, they already have Byron Jones and Xavier and Xavier Howard. They have these guys who are good in pass coverage. Why do they need more? Very simple. You're continuing to bolster a strength of your team. And if you subscribe to this notion that they clearly do, that pass coverage is so much more important than pass rush, you just continue strengthening the strength to the point where you're getting a ton of value out of your team's really strong pass coverage ability. And in Brian Flores' defensive scheme, you need a lot of guys and a lot of versatility in that secondary so you can run different packages, nickel and dime and all of that. So getting a guy in there, Nick Bonahenny, who I've said before, I think long-term ends up being a number two starting caliber corner in this league who is really fast, who has been a corner for only two years, so he's inexperienced, has a lot of potential. I think there's a lot of room to grow. Coming from a family with an incredible athletic background, I think this is a very intriguing prospect. And to get him at 30 and to continue to bolster this pass coverage on your defense, Noah Bonahenny is one of my favorite prospects in this entire draft. And to move down four spots, to get an extra fourth, and if they were as the three picks they made and what they have on paper now would be 15 picks in this draft, if that were to be the end result here, this is a great first round to set that up. So to summarize, you get a franchise quarterback, a potential franchise offensive tackle, and a really strong high upside corner to bolster the already strong pass coverage presence on your defense, which you are really basing your overall defense on, is your extreme level of pass coverage on all levels of your defense. Excellent first round for Miami Dolphins. I wanted them to trade down from 18 or 26, and they did. They added position, added talent at premium positions, upside plays, franchise quarterback. They killed it in this first round. Next, we go to the Los Angeles Chargers. Justin Herbert at pick six. They traded back into the first round at 23, trading 37 and 71 to the Patriots to get Kenneth Murray. My sentiments on Justin Herbert are known. I, I think he ends up being at best an average quarterback, a mid-tier quarterback. I, I don't think he's a championship quarterback. You know, the Chargers clearly telegraphed this intention of theirs as far as how they went about their offseason to get a quarterback in this draft. I'm not big on Herbert. So that's just to start off there with banking the franchise now, long-term on Herbert. I'm not a fan of his. Then I I thought the trade at 23 where they sent 37 and 71 to the Patriots, I like Kenneth Murray as a prospect, but that's an awful lot. 37 and 71, premium second, a premium third for a late first. If you look at that that trade on uh, on the draft chart, on the trade value chart for draft picks. Not great on the Chargers' end. So even though I like Kenneth Murray as a prospect, I'm not a fan of Justin Herbert. I don't need to get into that more so than I have before. And the value in which they gave up 
to get to 23 using 37 and 71, I thought was an overpay to a really strong extent. And as a result now, their first three rounds, what they're going to have to show for it, is Justin Herbert and Kenneth Murray. You know, I like Murray, as I said, but not overall great, not great use of assets and resources. I think they gave up too much to get to 23. And if I'm staking my long term on Justin Herbert, I'm probably not winning the Super Bowl. So not the best first round for the Chargers. I wouldn't call it bad because Murray is good. I think Herbert will be mid-tier average at best. So I will say it was a not great first round, but I wouldn't go as far as saying bad. Not a fan of the first round they had, though. Next, let's go to the Carolina Panthers. They went Derek Brown at pick seven. I thought they should have gone Isaiah Simmons. Now, I mentioned earlier, I, I like the value of Derek Brown at seven. You know, really strong, disruptive presence in, from the interior of a defensive line as far as rushing the passer, as far as um, infiltrating and hindering the run game for the other team. But at the same time, Isaiah Simmons, we talk about it here, Isaiah Simmons, one of the best prospects in this draft. That's a prospect who not many prospects like Isaiah Simmons come around. Derek Brown is a replicable archetype of a prospect. Isaiah Simmons is not. Off-ball linebacker, slot corner, box safety, edge rusher, he can do it all. Pass coverage, pressuring the quarterback, picking up a receiver in the slot, stopping the run game. He can do all of it. Now, you also have to have a defensive coordinator committed to using him in unique and creative ways, because if not, you're not getting the best value you can out of him. But overall, I, I just think there's more value to be had in Isaiah Simmons and Derek Brown. I think Isaiah Simmons is just an overall better prospect. However, even though I think they made the wrong pick there, I still think Derek Brown is solid. He'll be a nice fixture for them in the trenches. He'll get after the quarterback. He'll disrupt the other team's running game. He'll stop the run. He'll be effective in the pass rush, and that's what you want out of an interior defensive lineman. He's not a two-down player. He's an every-down player on the defensive side of the ball. I just think there's more value to be had in Isaiah Simmons over Derek Brown at that spot. And then specifically, the next pick, the Arizona Cardinals there at eight, they turned in their pick pretty quick. They won Isaiah Simmons really fast. They have a needed offensive tackle, sure, but if Isaiah Simmons is there at eight, Isaiah Simmons to me is a top-five-level prospect, and that Swiss Army knife nature of his as far as being able to contribute in all three levels of your defense, that's a no-brainer. You turn that card in right away. And now we look at this Arizona Cardinals team. This is a really exciting team on both sides of the ball now. Kyler Murray with DeAndre Hopkins, Larry Fitzgerald, Christian Kirk, um, Andy Isabella, Hakeem Butler, Keyshawn Johnson, Kenyon Drake, and then on the defensive side of the ball, now adding Isaiah Simmons, who is going to be deployed and used in so many creative ways. I think looking back on this, when we look back on this draft, like we did with Derwin James and the Chargers a couple of years ago, I think we're going to look back on this draft and say that teams overthought it and Isaiah Simmons went lower than he should have. Awesome pick. One of my favorite picks of this round, Isaiah Simmons at eight for the Cardinals. Next, let's go to the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'll discuss both picks here. C.J. Henderson at 9, and Calevon Chasen at 20. Really strong first round here, one of my favorite first rounds of the draft. I thought the Jaguars would trade down from 9. They didn't. C.J. Henderson, clearly the number 2 corner in this draft. There's concerns over his tackling ability, but he's really strong in coverage. I think C.J. Henderson has all the makings to me. Maybe not necessarily a dominant number 1 corner, but a really strong, maybe lower quality number 1 
high-quality number two corner. Either way, long-term, dependable starting cornerback at, again, the most important position on the defensive side of the ball. And then you go in there at 20 and get Caleb on chasing off the edge, the second most important position on the defensive side of the ball. And once you trade Yannick and Gakwe, you have a future combo off the edge on one side, Josh Allen, and the other side, Caleb on chasing. So in building out this next generation of Jacksonville Jaguars football, Duvall, shout out AEW, you, in theory, will have two really strong young edge rushers complementing each other, and you filled the hole that was there after Jalen Ramsey was traded and you traded A.J. Bouye to Denver. You now have your long-term top corner of the future, and you have your long-term edge rusher duo. And you have Miles Jack, you have Joe Schobert as well. You're building a nice infrastructure on the defensive side of the ball there. I think they'll still be in play for Trevor Lawrence at the top of next year's draft as of now, but they're one of my favorite first rounds in this draft. You come out of it with two premium position players and C.J. Henderson and Caleb Von Chasen, solid long-term players who should be contributors, maybe not elite-level all-pro types, but really strong long-term solid starters. So I think you come out of this first round to bolster your defense with two players like that, that's a huge win. So the Jacksonville Jaguars with Dave Caldwell and Tony Khan and everyone else in that front office, I think they did a superb job in this first round attacking premium positions, building out long for, uh, long-term infrastructure on their defense, and adding true pillars and, bl- and building blocks to this next generation of Jaguars football. Next, the Cleveland Browns at 10. Very simple here. They needed an offensive tackle. I know it was rumored that they were going to trade down from 10. Personally, I wasn't crazy about that because I thought they really needed to get a big four offensive tackle here. And they got Jedrick Wills Jr. from Alabama, who played a lot of right tackle. Actually, not a lot of. Exclusively played right tackle at Alabama, protecting Tua's blindside. Cleveland signed Jack Conklin this offseason, meaning Wills will be a left tackle for the Browns. I think he can do that. I think he could be an effective high-level offensive tackle on both sides, right or left. Better than Andrew Thomas in that respect. My number two offensive tackle on my board. And I think the Cleveland Browns this offseason, adding Austin Hooper, adding Jack Conklin, now drafting Jedrick Wills Jr. Andrew Barry's done an incredible job as GM of the Browns, and I thought this pick was a slam dunk, a home run, exactly what they needed. Got Wills in there at 10, the number two offensive tackle in the draft. Uh, potentially less of a... Uh, working on potential prospect than Makai Becton is, so maybe more pro-ready step in right away. I have no qualms or reservations about playing Wills as a left tackle versus right. I think he'll be very solid there. Slam dunk home run pick by the Browns, picking Wills at 10, one of my favorite picks of the entire first round. Let's next go to the New York Jets, talking about some of my favorite picks of the first round. Makai Becton. Now, I talked about on this draft how or on this podcast, how for this draft, I was someone who, even though I know the Jets needed to continue to add to their offensive line, I had been of the mindset where I thought they needed to add an elite level offensive weapon at wide receiver to really benefit Sam Darnold here. And I really wanted them to go with CeeDee Lamb at this 11th spot. But to go in there at 11 and get the best offensive tackle in this draft, I think Makai Becton with his incredible size and athleticism and upside, that trio right there, that's a major, major prospect there with a ton of upside. And I think that physical specimen that he is with his continued ability to really grow as a player, because I don't think he's a finished product, 
again, I've said it earlier and I'll say it again. I think we're looking at Jason Peters 2.0 here, perhaps even better. So to get that type of anchor in there, offensive tackle, I can let it slide. I think Beckton is going to be a stud. I think he's the best offensive tackle in this draft. I think there's monstrous upside there. Players of his size don't run five-second 40s. Players of his size don't have the footwork and lateral quickness that he does. This is a really good pick here for the New York Jets to really bolster whether he ends up long-term being on the left side or the right side. I would presume he ends up being their left tackle long-term. Even though I would have liked to see them go wide receiver, they picked the best offensive tackle in the draft when it was in need. I can't complain about that. I thought this pick, even though it wasn't Lamb, I thought this was a really strong pick. Combining all those elements I mentioned about Mekhi Becton, I think that was a huge value for them at 11. I think he's going to be a total, total stud. Next, we go to the Raiders. I'll discuss both picks here. Henry Ruggs at 12 and Damon Arnett at 19. I I expected wide receiver 12, corner 19, but I don't think they picked the right players at either spot. I, I know that they wanted to add speed to their offense. I know they needed to add a number one wide receiver because they were lacking in that regard after Antonio Brown's situation with them. Tyra Williams is number two. Hunter Renfro is a nice slot receiver. And you're in a division where you have to go up and play against Tyreek Hill multiple times a year and you see firsthand, wow. Look at the benefits that we have if we were to have or would have if we were to have this game-breaking, super-fast, down-the-field threat that nobody can keep up with. And when you have a guy in Henry Ruggs who runs a 4-2-7-40, who is as fast as can be, who is a big-play, game-breaking type wide receiver, and you want speed, Al Davis would have loved this pick. But if you want speed and need speed, Henry Ruggs is exactly what you need. Now, with that being said, I think they should have picked C.D. Lamb or Jerry Judy ahead of him. I think C.D. Lamb is DeAndre Hopkins' light. I think Jerry Judy is a better Calvin Ridley. Ruggs, I think, is good. I think he'll be a very strong wide receiver long term. I just don't necessarily look at him as a dominant number one wide receiver to the extent that Lamb will be, at least. And I, I think Judy's better than him also. I think they may have gotten a little bit blinded by speed there. I like Ruggs. I think he's very good. I would put him in that tier with Lamb and Judy, but I think he's clearly behind Lamb and Judy as far as being a number one wide receiver long term. So I just think I I don't mind the pick at all. I think he's going to be a great player, Henry Ruggs. I just think that they were a little bit blinded by the speed aspect and the I, the sort of idea that they could have a Tyreek Hill role occupying player in their offense, I think they got really blinded by that. I think they got infatuated with that idea. And I think they picked Ruggs when really they should have picked Lamb or Judy. So not a bad pick. I just think that they could have picked a better player long-term at that spot rather than focusing on one specific attribute or trait. And then we go to Damon Arnett at 19. Damon Arnett was someone who I was kind of intrigued by in the early process of my uh, draft scouting and getting into the process starting in December, January. Really, I guess, getting into the nitty-gritty of film and tape and YouTube and game footage of all of these prospects. I think Damon Arnett is a really solid second-round cornerback prospect, You know, a physical, big-body type. And he's a good prospect, don't get me wrong. 
My only gripe is that I just think that there were better corners available at that 19th overall spot. And now I get it. You know, if if Damon Arnett is one of your guys, quote-unquote, and you don't have a second-round pick in this draft because of the Khalil Mack trade, and you don't, maybe there's not enough interest or not a lot of interest from other teams to get you to be able to trade down for fair value from 19, you maybe just sit there and say, you know what, he's one of our guys, I don't want to mess around, let's just get him. I think Damon Arnett's going to be a solid player. I just think that Jalen Johnson's going to be better. I think Jeff Gladney is going to be better. I think Noah Bonahenny is going to be better. I think Trayvon Diggs is going to be better. I think uh, Christian Fulton is going to be better. I had Damon Arnett as my cornerback nine of this draft, and I think would have been a really solid mid-second round pick. Did they pick him earlier than he should have gone? Sure. Were there circumstances that probably made them kind of say to themselves, you know what, he's one of our guys, let's not mess around and let's just take him? Sure. I think the Raiders had a really strong chance to come in here and add a true long-term number one wide receiver and a really strong number two corner. And I think they got blinded by an attribute on one and reached a little bit for a second for the corner when they could have had someone better at that position, albeit Arnett is a solid prospect. I just think of it this way. I'd have rather come out of this first round with CeeDee Lamb and Jeff Gladney than Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett. That's not an indictment on either guy. I just think there are better prospects available at those spots which makes me look at their first round as being somewhat questionable in the overall macro of looking at the first round of this draft. Next, we get into the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Again, this one's very simple. They traded up from 14 to 13, swapping. They basically, they gave 14 and a fourth to San Francisco for 13 and a seventh. San Francisco was able just to turn a seventh into a fourth, removing back one spot. The Buccaneers... Switched a fourth into a seventh to move up one spot. They had to get offensive line help at the tackle spot to protect Tom Brady. There was one big four offensive tackle left at that spot. They had to ensure, with San Francisco being a team at 13 who was very likely to have interest from other teams in trading down and was looking to trade down to add capital in the middle of this draft, they had to get up there and ensure that they got themselves a big four offensive tackle. And if it cost you just losing a fourth and getting a seventh back and you get Tristan Wirfs, that's fine. You had a major need offensive tackle. You got it done. Tristan Wirfs, I had, as I said earlier, slightly above Andrew Thomas as my offensive tackle three. You know, I I think he's a right tackle long-term. I'm not sure how confident I am in him as a long-term left tackle. But nonetheless, I think you have a really solid, dependable right tackle starter for the long-term. Major need in front of Tom Brady and this incredible weapons um filled offense perfect pick there for the tampa bay buccaneers and then the san francisco 49ers this one is interesting they traded back from 13 to 14 turning that seventh into a fourth really strong there i thought okay they need a wide receiver they're gonna move back one spot turn a seventh into a fourth and get cd lamb or jerry judy and add him to this offense under kyle shanahan alongside debo samuel picked last year that's an absurd uh, that would just be unfair. That is absurd as far as having those weapons and that mind and that offense. Instead, they went and they picked Javon Kinlaw at 14. Again, they traded DeForest Buckner. Javon Kinlaw plays the same position. I know there's the people who have said or who are saying that Kinlaw has injury concerns with his knees. I think Kinlaw is going to be a total stud. I really do. They had a need to refill that interior defensive line spot. So I get it. 
I just think that they should have gone wide receiver at 14 rather than what I'm going to get into next. They traded 31, the acquired pick from Tampa of 117, and I forget the exact number, but the pick was in the 170s to move up from 31 to 25 and get Brandon Ayuk. Brandon Ayuk, my number five wide receiver in this draft. I really like him. Super athletic, really interesting physical profile, uh, big play vertical threat, big play threat. But the whole point here was the 49ers were going to trade down from 13 or 31 or both to get more draft capital in the mid-rounds because they didn't have a lot of it. Now, they made a nice move, moving down one spot, getting a player at a contributing position, but then they go out and they deplete a lot of their mid-round draft capital that they already had a small amount of. They traded 117, which they got, and they traded 176, or whatever the exact number was, I forget at the moment, to move up six spots and get Brandon Ayuk. Now, Ayuk will fit well in their offense. I like those really sort of big play athletic types in that Kyle Shanahan offense. You know, like Debo Samuel, we consider him a def, um, a positionless offensive weapon. Ayuk is not like that. He's a wide receiver type, but nonetheless, he's a super athletic, uh, you can super athletic, big play vertical threat type who you can do, do a lot of unique things with. So I like his fit there. I just don't like the idea of when you already have a limited supply of mid-round draft capital, using that much of it to move up six spots when you could have still gotten a really strong wide receiver like a Michael Pittman Jr., for example, at 31. So Kinlaw and Ayuk, just as prospects, studs. Those guys are going to fit great for them. I just think the value of their allocation of picks as far as trades are concerned could have been better. Moving along here, the Broncos at 15, very simple. They had to need a wide receiver, needed to add another wide receiver alongside of Cortland Sutton for Drew Locke to throw to. They thought they were going to have to trade up to get a wide receiver. They didn't. They stayed at 15. They had their choice of Jerry Judy and C.D. Lamb. They they chose Jerry Judy. He's their long-term number one wide receiver. Not much to get into here. Slam dunk. They got their number one wide receiver for the long term without having to trade up when they thought they would have to. Atlanta Falcons at 16. Uh, It was rumored that Thomas Dimitrov was looking to really be aggressive and trade up from 16, presumably for uh, C.J. Henderson. They say at 16, they got A.J. Terrell, who a lot of buzz in the most recent days was that he would be going in the top 17 of this draft. I think Terrell is solid. I think long-term, again, we look at that tier with uh, Jalen Johnson and Trayvon Diggs and Jeff Gladney and Noah Bonahenny and Christian Fulton. He's in that tier. I think he's solid. I think it'll be a long-term number two corner. They had a needed corner. They filled it. They didn't mortgage their future to do it. Fine pick. I can't complain. I don't think it's a wow pick, but I think it's a nice, satisfactory little pick there. They filled a need, and I think, you know, you pick your poison of that second tier of corners. I I had guys, obviously, ahead of him at that cornerback spot. Noah Bonahenny ahead of him, Jeff Gladney ahead of him, Jalen Johnson ahead of him. But you pick your preference there. I have no issue with that pick for the Falcons at 16, and I'm honestly... I was not a big a big fan of the idea of trading up from 16 and giving up so much to really get up there and get someone like a C.J. Henderson or a Javon Kinlaw or however high they could have gotten or Isaiah Simmons or whoever it may have been. I kept thinking all along, you know, if they have a needed corner and they want to address corner, you know, that whole second tier I just mentioned, there's going to be pretty much all of those guys available, if not all of them, at 16. Javon Kinlaw was two picks away from making it to pick 16. I never saw a need 
for the Falcons to trade all of these future picks or current picks to get up for the guys that they were supposedly interested in. So I actually like that they held firm, stood pat, stayed at 16, and got a guy in Terrell who I think is a long-term number two cornerback starter. Dallas Cowboys at 17, C.D. Lamb. Very simply here, the Dallas Cowboys now have an offense with Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, Michael Gallup, and a guy who I think is going to be a future pro bowler and DeAndre Hopkins-esque wide receiver and C.D. Lamb. They kept him away from division rival Philadelphia Eagles, and that offense is just absolutely ridiculous now. Pay Dak Prescott, move forward with that group, This offense is going to be one of the best in the league for years to come. I don't even need to get that deep into it. I think Lamb's the best wide receiver in this draft. Future Pro Bowler, for him to make it to 17 in and of itself is kind of crazy. And for it to be the Dallas Cowboys reaping that huge value and getting him at 17, adding him to this already potent offense, how can you pass that opportunity up? You can't. I don't care if you had a more pressing need at safety or, at, or if you wanted to add a corner because Byron Jones left, or if you were interested in edge like Caleb on Chasen, or if you need to replace Travis Frederick and like Cesar Ruiz, CeeDee Lamb's a top 10 talent. He's a future pro bowler. You can already strengthen a strong part of your team in your incredible offense. You do it. And you keep him away from your biggest division rival as well. Slam dunk home run pick for the Cowboys there at 17. A ridiculous, ridiculous value getting Lamb at 17. Moving from there, let's go to the Philadelphia Eagles at 21. This was a this pick to me, I thought all along, Justin Jefferson was the Eagles guy. They were linked all along. They really are a perfect match. Justin Jefferson had 11, 111 receptions last year. He is the ultimate safety blanket in the slot. Vertical threat, Intermediate throws from 10 to 15 yards, catches a ton of balls, catches contested throws. He is as dependable as can be, and he is a surefire, immediate contributor to your offense. And instead, they went with Jalen Rager. And when this team really needed help with this wide receiver position that they can depend on as a known productive entity, I I get the interest in Rager. He really, it's all comes down to as a, it really all comes down to his athletic profile here. You're really banking on that athletic profile, his speed, potentially being a big vertical threat, being a speedster type. You know, it's funny, Deshaun Jackson, when he was on Instagram live or whatever it was with LaShawn McCoy earlier today, he said that Howie Roseman told him the Eagles were looking for a speedster. Howie Roseman told Deshaun Jackson the truth. So now you look at it as, all right, We add another speed demon to this offense, a big vertical threat guy in Jalen Rager, and we have Deshaun Jackson, and maybe J.J. Ortega-Whiteside can improve, and maybe Alshon Jeffrey can have a bounce-back year. We have Zach Ertz. We have Dallas Goddard. Let's see how this can expand our offense. That's the idea they're going with there. But to me, when you have that need to add a dependable wide receiver to your team, when you have a known dependable productive quantity or entity In Justin Jefferson, you know he's going to be able to go out there in the slot and just make plays for you, and he'll just be a safety blanket of all safety blankets for Carson Wentz. You're kind of taking a risk in going with Jalen Rager there. You're banking on him being able to be this big, vertical, game-breaking threat, and I don't know if he's going to be that. 
you know, I think a lot of Eagles fans are still traumatized by Nelson Aguilar. Him being this athletic uh, big play threat, and the guy drops a ton of passes and isn't consistent year to year. I think a lot of Eagles fans are scared by the fact that this might be a repeat of Nelson Aguilar because there's a lot of similarities between him and Rager. Even if it wasn't Jefferson, I would have preferred Brandon Ayuk over Jalen Rager. I would have preferred Michael Pittman over Jalen Rager. I think I would have preferred T. Higgins over Jalen Rager. So at that point, you know, we're getting down to at best, he would have been my wide receiver eight, and I'm not even sure I'd have him at that point before other wide receivers who are going to be available and selected in this second round, like LaVisca Chenault and others. So this is a risk for the Eagles. They're banking on athletic profile here. I thought it was a questionable pick. I'm stunned, frankly, that they passed on Justin Jefferson. He was perfectly made for this Eagles offense. Speaking of Justin Jefferson, let's get into the Minnesota Vikings. I mentioned earlier, talking about the Dolphins, that I thought the Vikings had, uh, along with the Dolphins, were one of the teams that had the best two first rounds of any team in the league. The Vikings came into this first round with a need at wide receiver and a need at corner. Justin Jefferson at 22, I just mentioned all of his attributes. Dependable safety blanket, replaces Stephon Diggs. You have a combination of him and Adam Thielen. I love it. Then you come in there at 25. You trade down from 25, and you move down to 31, and you pick up 117 and 170-something, I forget, offhand from the 49ers. So you stay at 22 and get a surefire slot receiver who's going to be dependable for the long term. You trade down six spots, and you add multiple mid-round picks, and then you go and get Jeff Gladney. So you fill your two big needs, wide receiver and corner. You get extra picks in the mid-rounds, and you're adding a surefire starting long-term slot wide receiver, and you're adding a guy in Jeff Gladney, who in my opinion is a long-term number two starter for you at corner. You fill your two biggest needs, you add extra picks in the middle rounds, you add quality prospects at that at those two positions. I think that the Minnesota Vikings, you know, after trading Stephon Diggs for the first uh, and the other mid-round picks and late-round picks they got from Buffalo, moving down six spots and adding more mid-round picks from San Francisco, getting, in my opinion, the fourth-best wide receiver in this draft, the number one wide receiver of the second tier of wide receivers in this draft, and getting a guy in Jeff Gladney, who I had ranked really high as far as corners were concerned, I think is a long-term starter. I think they really hit a home run in this first round. And as I said, I think the Miami Dolphins and the Minnesota Vikings had the best first rounds of any teams in the league. Because they address needs, they address those needs with dependable, long-term starter at a very safe level players. And I think, especially with Gladney, you know, I think as far as what their defense looks like, how it operates, I think he fits them very, very well. I think Justin Jefferson would fit essentially any offense, so I don't necessarily need to say that aspect as far as providing positives for that pick, but... The ultimate slot receiver safety blanket in Jefferson. I think him and Thielen will have be a really nice duo. And I think Gladney fits their defense very well. Strong number two corner. Adding those mid-round picks. I'd like to see them wheel and deal continuously as this draft develops um, in the coming rounds. Add as much talent as possible. I think they need to add on their offensive line as well. But two biggest needs. They filled them. Quality prospects. I think they had a, an incredible, sensational first round alongside the Miami Dolphins, as far as being the two best teams uh, in this first round. Let's go to New Orleans Saints here. The New Orleans Saints at 24. I kind of thought that 
you know, they were going to go with an off-ball linebacker like Patrick Queen. Their other needs, you know, they had an off-ball linebacker need. They had an interior offensive line need. And they went with Cesar Ruiz to to attack that interior offensive line need. Cesar Ruiz, very versatile prospect. You could put him at center or either offensive guard spot. He was one of my favorite prospects in this draft, as I outlined in the prior podcast episode and outlined on Twitter. Ruiz is a guy who you can plug in there on day one. He's going to be an immediate contributor, staunch presence, has that versatility, so you can move him around the interior of your offensive line as his career develops, fills a need, a really solid prospect who you know is going to give you results. And just on a human level, I'm very happy for Cesar Ruiz here. Grew up here in South Jersey. Uh, as was shown on the ESPN telecast, the tragic story of his father, uh, his father's passing. I'm very happy for Cesar Ruiz to have succeeded to this point to be the first round pick of the New Orleans Saints here at 24, to have this great opportunity to be a long-term contributor for this team. He's worked hard and he's overcome a lot and he deserves this and he's really earned this incredible opportunity. So I'm a big Cesar Ruiz fan, not just as far as him as the prospect, but on, on a human level, just I think his story is incredible and I'm really rooting for his success. So I love this pick here for the Saints at 24 and getting Cesar Ruiz. And I really hope that Cesar Ruiz and expect Cesar Ruiz has a long, fruitful, successful career on the interior offensive line on the New Orleans Saints for years to come. Specifically, though, going back to him as a prospect, you're getting immediate results from day one, as I mentioned. He can play either guard spot or center, so you can move him around. He'll be versatile. There's a lot of value in that. And for a team with that need who is going to end up being in some level of transition once Drew Brees retires, that's a valuable player to have at a position of need. So I really like this pick there at 24. I thought Ruiz, as far as his range, was probably 17 to maybe uh, 17 to 25 or so in the first round. So to see him go at 24, that's a really strong value and is one of my favorite overall picks of the first round. Let's now go to the Green Bay Packers. Let's go to the Jordan Love trade. They traded up, as I just mentioned, with the Miami Dolphins, trading 30 and a fourth in the 130s to get up to 26. Aaron Rodgers is not going to be a happy man right now. The Packers did not draft a uh, needed offensive weapon at wide receiver or tight end to help this offense. They missed out on signing Austin Hooper. They played the comp pick game in free agency. You know, signing uh, Rick Wagner and signing uh, Christian Kirksey. They need, really need, wide receiver help or offensive weapons to add to this offense. This team just made it to the NFC Championship, Conference Championship game. And they don't make the effort to improve the weapons around Aaron Rodgers. And not only that, they go out and they make a trade up. They trade up in the draft, giving up a pick in the fourth round to go up four spots and get the guy that they view as his successor. If you're Aaron Rodgers, you're not happy right now. I really thought that the Packers in this draft would have been really well off staying at 30 and selecting either Brandon Ayuk or Michael Pittman Jr. Ayuk obviously went 25th. They could have had Michael Pittman Jr. and gotten themselves a really strong number two wide receiver and a really needed boost of adding a dependable, strong offensive weapon to this offense. And now they put themselves in a position where 
Jordan Love is now 100% the successor to Aaron Rodgers. And they went for a future move over a win-now move. And I've, I've talked again, I've talked about how I'm not a fan of Jordan Love. There's too much inconsistency there. He's going to need a lot of work. You know, one throw, he'll look like a beast. One throw, he ro- throws a really hard-to-understand interception. Uh, accuracy goes and comes at will. It's very strange. He makes bad decisions, and he makes good decisions. He's accurate in a tight window, and then he throws a ball 10 yards away from an open receiver. He's going to need work, and he's going to need work that gets a lot of the positives that I just mentioned to be more consistent. And really, the overall thing here is this. I say all these things, it all comes into one overarching uh, conclusion. He is remarkably inconsistent. And you're going to have to work with him to consistently give you the positives of his game. And I I do not think at all that he is going to be a long-term, high-level, dependable starting quarterback in the NFL. I just think there's too many flaws and too much inconsistency that has to be coached out of him And he's got to be coddled to a very large extent to really be able to grow and develop into this potential elite quarterback that he can be. Frankly, I just don't see it. I don't think it's going to happen. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of work for that to potentially happen. I just don't see it with Jordan Love. The Packers needed to add offensive weapons to this team badly. They didn't. They chose a future move over a win-now move. In free agency, they wanted to play the comp pick game. You can't be happy right now if you're Aaron Rodgers. You just went to the Converse Championship game, and team's kind of looking towards the future rather than looking for help in the immediate future over all else. And I just don't think Jordan Love, frankly, is that good. So to make that sweeping move and that sweeping declaration in that direction as far as the outlook of your team's future, that's really bold. It's really bold. And I'm not a fan of the move. I would have stayed, as I said, at 30, taken Ayuk or Pittman if they were available, I would not bank my future on Jordan Love. Next, we go to Jordan Brooks, Seahawks at 27. I thought the Seahawks were going to go with your Turk Gross Matos here. They need help off the edge. I think Gross Matos is going to be really good. I think he's a really strong talent to be taken in the second round. There's a lot of buzz around Jordan Brooks as far as him being a guy who could go in the first round in the last couple of days. I'm not that crazy about the pick. I think they needed to go with someone off the edge rather than an off-ball linebacker. I I think Brooks needs to improve at his overall uh, pass coverage abilities. You know, I think he, if he does so, he can be a solid contributing off-ball linebacker for the long term. But I would like to see him improve um, his pass coverage abilities. I know he's a guy who can be a tackling machine, a guy who can disrupt the run. But if he can improve his pass coverage abilities, he's a guy who I can look at and say, hey, I trust him to be a long-term player. presence as far as an off-ball linebacker for my defense, but until then, I'm not sure I'm a fan of taking him over Gross Matos, and for the second year in a row, the Seahawks kind of make a somewhat questionable decision. Last year, LJ Collier in the late first round, now Jordan Brooks here. I think Jordan Brooks, again, I just mentioned what he needs to improve on, so until he does so, the question still remains on whether Jordan Brooks is worth this pick. I think I'd have been comfortable with Jordan Brooks as a mid to late second round pick, more so than I would have been as a late first. I did not have him as one of my top five linebackers in this draft because of the um, I, the aforementioned pass coverage abilities, and frankly, I think there were just better guys available. Isaiah Simmons, Kenneth Murray, Patrick Queen, Zach Bond, Willie Gay. I had them all ahead of Jordan Brooks. 
And I think that this position was not the greatest need for the Seahawks. It was edge rusher. I think Yaturgos Matos offers a lot of future upside at that spot. I don't think this was the best move of the uh, mess move on their part to go away from Gross Matos and to go with Jordan Brooks there at 27. Next, we go to pick 28, the Baltimore Ravens. Patrick Queen, quite frankly, was one of the best picks of this entire draft. We look at prospect and team meshing together as a perfect fit. That is what Patrick Queen is for this Baltimore Ravens team. This Baltimore Ravens team, number one need as far as I was concerned, was an off-ball linebacker. I had Patrick Queen as my number two linebacker in this draft. He has speed that he can cover the field east to west. He's really strong in pass coverage. He's what you want in a modern off-ball linebacker. I love the pick. One of my favorite picks of the entire first round. Next, going to pick 29, Isaiah Wilson for the Titans. Again, I mentioned earlier, this tier two of offensive tackles was largely comprised of um, upside play tackles. You know, I personally, I, I liked Ezra Cleveland more than Isaiah Wilson. I like Josh Jones the most of anyone in that tier. I'm not that crazy about Isaiah Wilson. I get it. You know, Jack Conklin just left. They need to add someone for the future at the offensive tackle spot at right tackle. Wilson's a pure upside play here. We'll see if it works out. I'm not that crazy about it. I'm surprised that the Titans didn't trade down. They were rumored to do so or be looking to do so throughout this process. But again, a need was there at offensive tackle. And let's see if Isaiah Wilson can fulfill that upside play they're clearly earmarking him for. I just think if that's the route they wanted to go, Josh Jones would have been a better uh, prospect to pursue at that 29th spot. And then the last pick here, since I already discussed the Dolphins and the Vikings move to discuss here in the first round, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, the final selection of the first round at 32 to the Kansas City Chiefs. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, I mentioned in my last podcast, he's one of my favorite players, favorite prospects in this draft. I look at Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and I see Brian Westbrook 2.0. He's a smaller guy who's a shifty runner, who's strong and physical when he runs. He's a very effective pass-catching back. He's a three-down back. He can be in there on third down on passing downs. He can be a bell cow guy on early downs. He's dependable as far as everything you need a modern running back to be. Inside the tackles, outside the tackles, a physical runner, really strong receiving back. And it's very fitting that in an Andy Reid offense, he adds Brian Westbrook 2.0. I love this pick. I had him again as really basically my co-RB1 in this draft along with Jonathan Taylor. I thought he would have been an incredible fit for Miami or Tampa. Good on Kansas City to get him in though. I think he's going to be an incredible asset to that offense. And especially with Andy Reid there, we saw the success that Brian Westbrook had for so many years under him with the Eagles. I think we could potentially be looking at the second version of that player with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire under Andy Reid in this Kansas City Chiefs offense. This was one of my favorite picks of the entire first round. And as I just tweeted out earlier, just to put it on the podcast here, some of my favorite first round picks, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire at 32, Noah Igbonaheni at 30, Tua at 5, Makai Becton at 11, uh, CeeDee Lamb at 17, Jeff Gladney at 31, Jerry Judy at 15, Isaiah Simmons at 8, Justin Jefferson at 22, Cesar Ruiz at 24, and Patrick Queen at 28. My big takeaway right now as we head into day two of the draft, 
there's a lot of talent available in the early second round of this draft. I feel like this happens every single year. And this year is no different. Just looking specifically, how is Xavier McKinney still available going here into the early second round? Yatur Gross Matos, Antoine Winfield, Zach Bond, Grant Delpit, Jalen Johnson, Jonathan Taylor, Michael Pittman, DeAndre Swift, Josh Jones, Ezra Cleveland, Jalen Hurts, J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers. And the list goes on and on and on. Matt Hennessy, Lloyd Cushenberry, Cameron Dantzler, Bryce Hall, Ashton Davis, Prince Tego Winogo. There's a lot of talent. Neville Gallimore, Julian Aquara, Justin Madubuike. There's a lot of talent available in this second round of the draft. And again, looking at the uh, research of Cade Massey and Richard Thaler, the second round, around pick 45 or so, that's where you're going to get the most surplus value of any spot in the draft. Every year I find myself saying this. If I was a general manager, I would wish every year that I'd have as many second round picks as I possibly could because you're going to be able to get a lot of value out of that group. I think there's going to be a lot of running backs taken in the second round. Again, Jonathan Taylor, DeAndre Swift, uh, J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers. I think you're going to see at least all four of them go in the second round of this draft. I think the Dolphins at 39 specifically could very well end up taking one of those guys. Uh, Very intrigued to see what the Bengals do at pick 33. If it were me personally, I think I'd want to add to the offensive line. I'd look at someone like a Josh Jones at 33. I think would be a nice add for them. Uh, And we're going to see a lot of wheeling and dealing with these second round picks. The Indianapolis Colts, they kill it in the second round every year. What are they going to do at picks 34 and 44? Are they going to look to maybe get a quarterback for the long term and maybe look at someone like Jalen Hurts? What are the New England Patriots going to do at pick 37, now having a pick in the second round because they didn't beforehand due to the Mohamed Sanu trade? I think, especially going back to the Colts again, do the Colts look at 34 or 44 and look to maybe get a wide receiver? Do the Steelers look to get a quarterback in the second round of this draft? Where does Xavier McKinney end up going? Where does Zach Bond end up going? Um, where does your Turcos Matos end up going? How do these teams uh, maneuver and trade around? Do they trade for mid-round picks in this draft? Do they try to add capital in next year's draft? There's just a lot of options here, and I'm really intrigued to see how they all play out. But nonetheless, the fact of the matter is this. There's a lot of talent available here in this second round. And just looking at the first round again, Miami, Minnesota, Jacksonville, Baltimore, Cleveland, New England just because of the value on that trade. And there's other teams as well, but those are the teams that immediately stand out to me as teams that really did strong and did well in this first round. The Eagles, questionable first round. Uh, The Raiders, a questionable first round. Uh, Los Angeles Chargers, a questionable first round. I I wouldn't necessarily say that anyone had a, a definitively bad first round. I would just say that those were some questionable teams in the first round of this draft. But nonetheless, those are my thoughts here on my immediate one o'clock in the morning here uh, reactions and review of the first round of the 2020 NFL Draft. Shout out to all of you, the listeners. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to check back here for more episodes of After the Final Whistle on podcast.com or Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the NFL Draft. Uh, Hope everyone listening to this podcast is doing safe 
and doing well. Um, and as always, shout out to you, the listener, and especially fitting for right now as it is 1.30 in the morning. Goodbye and good night.